on a warm evening on June 7, 2011, Hector Monsiger heard someone at his door. When I open the door, I see the whole FBI squad just standing there. They said, come on, step out of the door. Unbeknownst to his family and friends, Hector, 27 at the time, had become one of the most notorious hackers on the internet. The year before, he joined the online vigilante collective Anonymous, and just a month earlier had co-founded the offshoot LulzSec. With these groups, he had launched devastating attacks on governments and businesses worldwide. He could go to prison for the rest of his life for these crimes. So my mind at this moment is running millions of miles per second. I mean, I'm telling you, now I had to figure out my next move because they had me. I knew that I was a goner. I was dead. You know, I was done. Unless there was a way out. And I'm Aki Ito. And this week on Decrypted, we're telling you the story of the former anonymous hacker, Hector Monsiger, a.k.a. Sabu. Over the years, much has been written about his cyber attacks, his arrest, and his subsequent decision to secretly cooperate with the government. A lot of those stories, Hector says, got the facts wrong. Today, he's opening up about his full story, about how a kid who grew up in the projects, who didn't even finish high school, somehow came to break into the computer systems of multi-billion dollar companies and governments. We'll also trace his unlikely path to redemption. This story is divided into two episodes. This is part one, and if you subscribe to the show, part two should already be in your feed. Stay with us. Thank you. In December, I flew to New York to go meet Hector for the first time. Hector, how's it going? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks for making the time today. It's not a problem. We started the day in the Lower East Side of Manhattan by the Jacob Rees Public Housing Projects. This is where Hector's grandmother landed when she emigrated from Puerto Rico in the late 60s. She held on to that same apartment where Hector himself lived for much of his life. You're going to look up to the sixth floor, you're going to see... a window with uh, air conditioner. Okay. And that's it. And I, mean, I was there my whole life, you know. Hector was born when his parents were teenagers. He says his dad wasn't ready to be a father, and his mom left the family when Hector was still young. She was trying to get a better life. She was trying to get out of this yeah. hole. Because once she's stuck here, let me tell you, Aki, once you get stuck here, mm-hmm. you're just stuck here. It's, There's not a lot of success stories here. That left Hector with two main parental figures in his life, his grandmother and his aunt. As a young kid, Hector was a good kid. He didn't keep a big social circle ever. That's his aunt, who Hector's asked me not to identify. You'll see why as we get deeper into the story. He was a good kid. I I got no complaints about him. He was the best son a a mother could ask for. Very polite, very well-mannered. 
Hector's a big guy. He's 6'2", and on this morning, he was wearing a black hoodie under another black hoodie with a baseball hat. He pointed to a corner where a guy just got shot in the head the other week. But he says this area was a lot worse when he was growing up. Back in the days, they used to have little crack bottles. I'm not sure if you've ever seen those. I know, I don't think I have. I'll try to Google a quick picture for you. Sure. But if there was that trend where... There was a trend where instead of instead of putting the crack in bags the way they do now, yeah. they used to put the crack in crack bottles. And you used to see that all over the place. That wasn't the only way Hector's life was intertwined with crime. His aunt, that same aunt you just heard from, sold heroin. And his dad was also involved in the drug business. So he was a guy that you would call if you're a drug dealer and someone owes you money or there's a problem, my father would come and beat you up. Wow, okay. Kidnap you, throw you in the back of the car or something. He's a sweetheart now, by the way. <laughs> My father's a, a lovely gentleman, but back in the days, he was young and stupid. One day, when he was a preteen, Hector's aunt brought him a computer. She wanted me to do home my homework and stuff and write up reports. So she bought me, like, at the time, it was like, it was like the model. It was like the supercomputer, uh, <laughs> the super desktop. It was... Uh, it was a Sony Vile. It had like 16 megabytes of RAM. It had like, had a Pentium 166 chip in it. Wow. It had a 28.8 upgraded K modem. Um, it was like a Cadillac. Hector sounds super excited here, but when his aunt first gave him this computer, he really didn't take an interest. He was busy playing outside with his friends, and the computer got stored in a closet. Everyone forgot about it. Shortly after this, Hector's life took a dramatic turn. My aunts and my father were arrested in Harlem. And, you know, the cops came and arrested my grandmother in our apartment. So I was there when the cops came. They broke into the door and they, uh, they let me and my brother go. With nowhere to go, Hector, 13 years old at the time, stood out on the streets until the sun rose. Then he got passed around the homes of a couple relatives until his grandmother got released on bail and took him back to the sixth floor apartment in the Lower East Side. The police had ransacked the place. Once everybody was gone and we threw everything out, I went to the closet and boom, there's a massive Sony vial box there. This time, eager for an escape, Hector took an interest. So I get online the first time, and it's like, you got mail. It's AOL. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had like a CopySurf trial. CopySurf was another service similar to AOL. And I just get online, and I'm just talking to people. At first, I thought they were all fake. Right? I thought they were like robots or something. This can't be real. <laughs> like chatbots. The chatbots. Yeah. And so I started cursing people out. As a 13-year-old kid, I mean, you know, my insults were childish. And uh, people started cursing me back. Mm-hmm. So I was like, wow, this is either some really sophisticated bots or these are real people. Yeah. <laughs> when Hector's aunt gave him the computer, she had one warning. Because of the way our minds run in my family, the only thing my words to him were when I gave him that computer were, this is a federal offense. Whatever you do, don't do nothing criminal on it. Which is excellent advice, 
But with his aunt and dad in prison, Hector and his grandmother had very little money. It was just me and her surviving off of like a bull a $600 a month SSI check. So it was a tough situation and I needed to find ways to get a line for free. Hector came up with an ingenious and illegal solution. He would use other people's AOL accounts to get online, either by guessing their passwords or even by pretending to be an AOL employee to trick users into handing over their personal information. You know how they say, like, marijuana is a gateway drug. Well, password cracking is another gateway drug. I think a lot of us remember that moment when we first got dial-up internet at home and the things that made the internet feel a little magical. Oh, absolutely. I remember the first time I was in university talking with my high school friends that were at different colleges around the world, and the idea of just communicating with them online seemed, you know, completely amazing. Yeah. You know, for me, and I'm just a couple years younger than Hector, chatting with my friends on AOL Instant Messenger was my thing. But for Hector, the internet was a different kind of toy. A vast library that he could just get lost in. I would wake up in the morning before school, before I quit school. Mm-hmm. And I would just get online and just read. I would go to altavista.com because Google wasn't that big yet. Yeah. So you had AltaVista, you had Excite. So I would just type in how to hack or Unix or systems administration or whatever. I would just sit there and read manuals. I was just reading and reading and reading and reading. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I broke into my first system. Without passwords, without anything like that. And it was a Japanese university server. What was the purpose of breaking into that server? It's a proof of concept. Can I do it? And then they became my, my, uh, my test bed, right? Okay. And so I learned so much off of that system. We should be clear, hacking into a university server is definitely a crime. But Hector's still an early teen at this point. Like, he loved that there was something new that he could focus on and get away from the world we was in. When he was 16, Hector's hacking morphed into something different, something more politically charged. At the time, in the year 2000, Puerto Ricans were protesting the U.S. Navy for conducting bombing practice on the island of Vieques, the exercises that accidentally killed a civilian there. Hector, who, remember, is of Puerto Rican descent, joined the protest online by hacking into a Puerto Rican government server and defacing its website. Soon after, when Hector's grandma was watching TV coverage of the protests, she heard something odd. They kept referring to a person called Sabu, the online pseudonym that Hector had started going by. The name was a reference to a particularly vicious wrestler. And she knew that I was calling myself Sabu. So she came to me and she was like, what are you doing? What's your name? I said, look, man, I'm, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm uh, in a way, I'm a, I'm a rebel. I'm trying to be a rebel. I'm a kid. I'm trying to be Che Guevara, you know? My mother's fear was that they would retaliate and come, up, come looking for him, you know? That was always her fear of everything. She tried to, like, get me offline. She would, like, disconnect the computer while I was sleeping because I never saved anything. Hector didn't listen. And his aunt, who is probably the only other person who could have stopped him, was still in prison, trying to avoid getting into any more trouble herself. So every time he came to talk to me, I was like, I don't want to know, please. I don't want to know. He used to be like, but you're the only person I have to talk to. 
That was his adrenaline. Shortly after the Vieques hack, in the ninth grade, Hector dropped out of school. He said he was depressed, missing his dad and his aunt, who were still in prison, living under financial strain. And as he got more isolated in the real world, Hector sought a community online. One day, he was approached by the guy who ran the underground hacker group, Hackwiser. He was really cool. Uh, probably one of the coolest people I've ever met on the internet. And he was like, yeah, Sabu, like, I want you to participate. And, you know, we got some stuff coming up. Soon after, this happened. Late Saturday night in Washington, Sunday morning in China, a United States Naval Maritime Patrol aircraft on a routine surveillance mission in international airspace over the South China Sea collided with one of two Chinese fighters that were shadowing our plane. Both our aircraft and a Chinese aircraft. The collision killed the Chinese pilot, and the American plane was forced to make an emergency landing. The Chinese government refused to release the plane's American crew until President George Bush apologized. The showdown led to a bizarre skirmish where Chinese hackers hacked U.S. government websites and left politically charged messages on them. And so all the, guy, all the U.S. hackers were like, all right, we got to do something, too. We have to, we have to fight back. And uh, we just started hacking the shit out of Chinese government websites. So you're kind of like a rogue we're cyber rogue, warrior. Basically, yeah. for the United States. A few years later, in 2002, Hector's aunt and dad were released from prison. With his family back, Hector's life came to resemble something much closer to the lives of other teenagers his age. He started taking more time away from the computer, attending protests in real life on the streets, where he met student activists at the local universities. Just hanging out with them at, at McSorley's over there, in, you know, by St. Mark's and... Um, just hanging out in the bars in the back, just drinking and talking about politics. He even got legit jobs as a system administrator, which is essentially like an IT guy. I was a different person. You know, I was just working and living life. I would still dabble here and there. Because in order for you to, to maintain your experience and skills, you obviously have to continue, right? But I wasn't doing hacktivist operations like I used to. During his pause on his high-profile hacks, Hector helped start a computer security firm with a Swedish business partner. They secured some clients in the Nordic region, but the business folded shortly after. Then he got a job at a nonprofit, earning a $100,000 salary. But life was about to get a lot tougher. That's coming up. Welcome back. We left our story with things looking up for Hector. But by the late 2000s, Hector's grandma was sick with a worsening case of diabetes. She could barely get out of bed. Hector was her caretaker. Meanwhile, Hector's aunt had gone back to dealing heroin. In 2009, she got arrested again. She had two young daughters who were three and five years old. And with his aunt gone, it was up to Hector to raise the girls. Did you feel ready for that responsibility? No. To become a father overnight is insane. By the spring of 2010, between taking care of the girls and taking care of his grandmother, Hector couldn't make a normal office job work. He lost his job at the nonprofit. And then he lost his grandmother. 
He was 26 at the time. Her dying was just like, I couldn't even cry. I was just like, wow, I can't believe it. Why this? Why me? Why is she gone? But then you had to come to the realization, dude, she's been sick for 10 years. I was there at home with the kids. We were as low as possible. Trust me when I tell you, we were really, really low. Um, that was the lowest I've ever been. Because I had the girls, but there were times I was scared. I couldn't, be, I, I couldn't feed them, you know? That's when I spiraled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when I really lost it. And I just started hacking the planet, man. Some of Hector's hacks came out of these destitute times. On a few occasions, he hacked a company that sold auto parts. So, for example, if someone did an order for a car motor and the destination was Connecticut, I would change the destination to a location in New York and I would pick up the motor and, and, and I sold them and just bought the kids food and bought crayons and coloring books. But most of Hector's hacks were far more ambitious in their scope. And those hacks were sparked by a video that WikiLeaks published online in April 2010. The views from a U.S. Army helicopter, and you can see the gun's crosshairs in the middle of the frame. You hear the American soldiers aboard discussing the group of men they see below. They're walking, and the helicopter just starts spraying them with, with bullets. Come on, fire! Pretty graphic. You're know, seeing arms, and heads ripped off. And you're like, damn, that's pretty tough. But these guys got to be terrorists. Two of the people who were shot were journalists with the news agency Reuters. U.S. soldiers mistook their camera equipment for weapons. The video sparked public outrage. It became a rallying cry for the hacker group Anonymous. And it reignited something within Hector. It really bothered me because here in New York, growing up, I'm not going to um, talk too bad about the NYPD, but... I've seen stuff these cops have done. I guess people in authority, right? Mm -hmm. They have a gun. They feel like they have the authority to shoot first, ask questions later. You had no idea if the guys were journalists or not. They just shot them. But you know what really killed me? Watching the the ambulance, right? You saw the guy with the van. He tried to rescue people that were still alive. And they just blew him up with his kids. I mean, that, that was tough to watch. With a renewed drive to act, Hector wanted to do something, and he went on a hunt to join Anonymous, which was gaining notoriety at the time. He watched the YouTube videos posted by the group, which took him to the website 4chan, where he found the links to join Anonymous's online chat forums on IRC, which stands for Internet Relay Chat. Right, the IRC was sort of an internet-wide bulletin board. You can almost think of it like a big version of Slack, where you can join individual channels devoted to different topics. And this was where he found the Hackers channel, and Hector got approached by a guy who went by the handle T-Flow. He asked Hector if he wanted to join a secretive hacker club. Hector said yes. So they invite me to a room called 
uh, internet feds. And internet feds was full of like all the big names of Anonymous at the time. Mm. It was the place to be in. Earlier, we heard Hector talk about hacking the planet. You can take that pretty literally. I've done a lot of hacks. Yeah. I've, I've done thousands of hacks. Okay. I've done hacks so big that you would never know. I can never discuss it. But out of, out of everything that you know, mm-hmm. and what the media knows, what the public knows, one of the bigger hacks is the average spring stuff. This he's referring to is the Tunisian uprising of 2011, which went on to spark similar protests across the Arab world. The people's protests are in no way cooling down, even as the politicians agreed on plans for a coalition government, including the opposition. I don't know what other people's inspirations were, but I saw the Tunisian situation as something that could change history. That could probably cause a chain reaction in the Middle East and get rid of a lot of the dictators that were there. And... um, I thought, you know what, I could probably help these people. So Hector and a number of anonymous hackers attacked the Tunisian government's network, disrupting officials' email and defacing the prime minister's website. Hector joined similar attacks on other authoritarian regimes, including the governments of Algeria, Yemen, and Zimbabwe. And then there were Anonymous's less worldly hacks. The group punished companies that had shunned WikiLeaks. For example, when PayPal, Visa, and MasterCard started blocking donations to WikiLeaks, the Anonymous hackers slowed or knocked offline their websites. But perhaps the group's most brazen attack during this time was an act of revenge. It was against a guy called Aaron Barr. He was the CEO of H.B. Gary Federal. Now, H.B. Gary is a cybersecurity firm that offers protection to corporations and governments from cyber attack. Barr threatened Anonymous by telling the Financial Times he had collected information on their core leaders, including many of their real names. The response was swift. Anonymous took down their website, stole thousands of emails, and posted them on the Internet. The CEO resigned. I remember this story, Aki. Aaron Barr's boast got a lot of attention. It was it was just the hubris of it all. And then, of course, it all came back to bite him. I, I even remember writing a Business Week article about it at the time. Yeah, and what made the hack extra risky wasn't just the publicity it generated. Hector and I talked about this over lunch at a diner, where he'd order these big breakfasts to wind down after an all-night hacking spree. I was like, wow. I really crossed the boundary. Like, I really went too far. This HB Gary was a federal contractor. That's a core U.S. asset. Um, And you, like, had the girls at that point, right? So, like, but you didn't think, like, wow, I should really stop before I get caught? It was too late. As soon as I got the kids, I was already involved in other hacking operations. It was just so late. I could have slowed it down. You're right. And that's definitely a mistake. That's definitely something that I admit. Like, I could have stopped. Um, I would have got arrested either way. Yeah. But I could at least stop and, and maybe lessen the blow. Um, but I was, the, I was at the point, at least I, I felt like I was at the point of no return. And uh, sometimes, you know, again, part of my language, but sometimes you have a moment, right? As this was all going down, his aunt was still in prison. One time, Hector visited with her daughters and his friend. The friend that accompanied him up to that visit told me, you need to hurry up and come home. There's a lot of things going on that I can't tell you. 
And having him tell me that was enough for me to be like, what could possibly be going on? And then I was getting little bits and pieces like from my aunts that they would try to meet up with him or see my daughters or something. We don't know what Poopy's doing, but, you know, something's not right. But nobody could tell me specifically what it was. In May 2011, Hector embarked on what would be his final hacking spree. It was just a situation where the last of us, the last of the internet feds, we were in a room by ourselves. We had survived a whole bunch of drama and arguing and fighting. So it was just us six, which was me, um, Kayla, T-Flo, Topiary, Pone Sauce, and AV Unit. They called themselves Lulsec. Lulz for laughs, sec for security. It was a group of young guys making fun of the cybersecurity industry. Each day, they hacked a different entity, companies like Sony Pictures, PBS, Nintendo. And they didn't do it quietly. They published press releases to take credit for the attacks. And in a day they dubbed FFBI Friday, you can just imagine what that first F stands for, Lulzsec even hacked the Atlanta chapter of an organization affiliated with the FBI called InfraGuard. The hackers stole and released login credentials, passwords, and other confidential information. They also defaced the chapter's website, posting a YouTube video with words above it that said in all caps, let it flow, you stupid FBI battleships. But once I did the defacement and people started commenting on it, what I ended up getting were comments about how I'm going down in the worst possible way. Like, oh, they're gonna get you now. Like, you, you really screwed up. Then I found out that InfraGuard was really deeply embedded into the FBI. And so over the next few days, I was paranoid. I wiped my laptop. I sat there uh, playing with the kids. And every day I would take them to church. And, uh, you know, I started seeing Con Edison trucks parked out in front of my building. Uh, yeah, it was just bizarre. People hiding in vans with paperwork, peeking at me. It was a balmy evening on June seventh, two 2011, exactly one year after his grandmother's death. Hector went to a local Rite Aid, bought the girls coloring books and toys, and dropped them off at church. He wanted to get them out of the apartment, the same apartment where, a decade and a half earlier, he once watched the cops haul away his grandmother. He says he sensed what was about to happen next. And then... They said, police. I said, police? What are the police doing here? When I open the door, I see the whole FBI squad just standing there. They said, come on, step out of the door. At the door was Chris Tarbell, a young special agent in the FBI's elite cyber squad. A handful of other agents were there, too. One of them said... We know who you are, dude. I know you're Sabu. I'm like, well, I don't know who that is. And I knew it. I knew they had me. Um, But I was trying to burn some time, trying to figure out what I could do with these kids. With his aunt in prison, his grandmother dead, Hector was the sole guardian of his young cousins. More than anything else, he worried about the FBI calling child services. These little girls, I cannot allow them to go into foster care I gotta do everything in my power to make sure they stay with me. Because, and mind you, we're talking about a split second, but for that split second in my brain, it was like a week. He didn't know what to do, so Hector let the agents into his apartment. 
They sat around his kitchen table. Hector stalled them, continuing to deny that he was Sabu. So the agents brought up some damning evidence they'd uncovered through a search warrant for his Facebook account. On Facebook, Hector had sent a relative a list of other people's credit card numbers that he'd obtained. That's a serious crime, and it was enough for the FBI to arrest him. But the agents wanted something more. And when they said, how about you just come downtown, you know, let's figure this out together. I knew I had some leverage. I had something. I said, all right, I'll do that. We got to leave the kids here with my brother. And um, Chris Tarbell, uh, he's no longer an FBI agent, so I can actually mention his name. Mm-hmm. He was a gentleman. He said, okay, he's going to leave the kids here with your brother, and you're going to come down with us, and we're going to figure this out. The agents arrested Hector, and right around midnight, took him to the FBI's office at 26 Federal Plaza in downtown Manhattan. At the FBI's office, Hector didn't even ask for a lawyer. He was still terrified of losing custody of his young cousins, and he wanted to make every show of cooperating. When I got downtown, I said, look, here's what I know, exploits, zero days, um, attack methodology. I know how anonymous works, and it works really bad. It's not sophisticated. Trust me. Um, I'm the most sophisticated hacker there. Look at me. I'm, you know, high school dropout, right? So, uh, but they were more curious about, like, how decentralized organizations work. Um, they were really curious if Anonymous was truly decentralized, which I've told you no, they're not, or they weren't. Um, they were curious about how we were doing these fast-paced, um, sophisticated hacks or high-profile hacks. And I explained to them, it was easy. I did most of them. And that's when they hit me. They said, okay, well, you admitted to these crimes, you're going to have to charge you with these crimes. Uh, so I knew that I was a goner. I was dead. You know, I was done. But Hector had a lifeline. How he avoided a 124-year prison sentence and his long road to redemption, that's coming in part two of this episode. If you subscribe to our show, it's already in your feed.